Chapter 34 Dreaded Albania We walked up the wide steps and entered the simple white building that made up the Albanian border. A rotund patrol guard sat behind a long marble counter. A few old chairs were against one wall, a table with miscellaneous forms against the other. A feeling of chaos reigned here as people rushed in and out, many impatiently demanding things from the unperturbed guard sitting behind the counter. He peered at us with suspicion and barked some words in Albanian. I asked if he spoke any other language, and he answered a firm no. I held out my hand, palm up in an attempt to communicate, and with my index and middle fingers of my other hand, ran them across my palm. The guard just responded with more Albanian words. What he's saying is that you need to fill out the visa forms on the desk over there, I heard a man's voice saying clear Australian accent. I turned to see a slight man in his 40s wearing khaki clothing and a safari hat. I'm talking to Crocodile Dundee, I chuckled to myself. The cost is really only 12 euros, he said, but he's asking you to pay 20. These people are very poor and in desperate need of money. This guy probably hasn't been paid in a long time. If you want to enter this country, that's the price you're going to have to pay. I didn't know if he was talking about the monetary price or the emotional price of walking through my fears. From the earliest day of our pilgrimage, we had been warned about the dangers of walking in Albania, from ruthless violence to corruption on all levels. We were encouraged to avoid the country altogether, but there was no way to get to Macedonia and Greece without passing through Albania. After all that I had gone through, and especially after Zalko, I should have known to trust my personal experiences and leave the rest behind. But somehow, I couldn't. The Australian man exchanged a few more words in Albanian with the guard. I didn't have the impression that they were friends or friendly, only that this man knew the rules of the game and how to play them. He handed us the papers and hurriedly explained how to fill them out before rushing out the door. The guard took our passports and after an hour of waiting, finally called us over and handed us each a small piece of paper. Very important, he said earnestly, waving the paper and slipping it into the passport. Never lose. Always keep in passport. 20 euros, please. So you do speak English, I said encouragingly. No, was his smiling reply. We paid the fee, and he stamped our passports. On April the 19th of 2002, we officially entered Albania. We started towards Baija, a town where the ever-resourceful Fra Ante had friends waiting for us. The road, narrow and uneven, was marked with huge potholes and looked like it hadn't been paved in years. There wasn't even a hint of a sidewalk, only a ditch separating the road from the scorched fields. Garbage littered the landscape and was pushed into piles every few hundred meters. The few buildings that we passed were bombed out or in desperate need of repair. It was a shock to see all of this and harder still to believe that we were still in Europe. 
the people drove aggressively, honking and gesturing for us to get off the road. One driver slowed down and hung his head out the window, stared at my breasts, nodded in appreciation, and then drove away. I didn't know whether to laugh, cry, or scream. My nerves were frayed by the time we arrived at the church, a newly built structure that stood out in stark contrast to the general poverty all around it. The attending priest welcomed us and offered to escort Alberto to get groceries, telling us that Alberto would be taken advantage of as a tourist if he went alone. They returned quickly, laden with local bread, cheese, olives, and tomatoes, and the priest bitterly complaining that despite his presence and complaints in Albanian, Alberto was still charged double the normal price. I would never attempt what you are doing here, he proclaimed. This country is coming out of an oppressive dictatorship and the people are desperate. They have no regard for the law or for human life. You can't trust any of them. Thieves stop the car in broad daylight and they will rob and kill its occupants. Even I've been robbed and I'm a priest. The police don't care. They're useless and you have to bribe them to get anything done. If I were you, I would take a bus out of here. I seriously considered taking the bus. But later that night, as I sat in meditation, I focused on replacing the vision of the country that this priest had given me with that of peace and harmony and nothing but goodness in every person that we met. I decided to hold on to that vision. That night, Alberto cut out the words for the signs that we would be carrying in Albania, written for us by the priest. Esim perne Jerusalem per pace would be my sign, and pace would be Alberto's. A glorious morning greeted our 30-kilometer walk to Skadar, the next town where Fra Ante had friends. The road took us through mainly tiny villages that I imagined sustained themselves by farming the land and tending to livestock. Garbage continued to dominate the landscape, and the stench, which was often mixed with that of human waste, was intolerable. Barefoot children in ragged clothing played in the streets and chased after us when we passed by. Men of all ages sat at tables in front of bars that measured no more than a large closet. Most called out for us to sit and talk, which we did the first few times, until it became apparent that these men had nothing else to do in this impoverished part of the country. They were friendly and respectful, speaking to us in Italian, a language they acquired from watching Italian television programs. From them, we learned more about the history of this country and their shared dream of leaving it to find better work opportunities elsewhere. They were awed by our ability to leave our countries at will, a luxury most here will never experience. Without exception, they all warned us against trusting any Albanians, especially the police. So, of course, when a police car stopped ahead of us later that day, I was terrified. The young police officer asked for our passports and flipped through the pages slowly, examining the entry visa in great detail. 
When he asked for our destination, I turned to show him my sign and briefly explained our walk. I stopped you for your own safety, he said, returning our passports. You must be careful on these roads. Never walk at night. This is still an unstable part of the country, and anything can happen to you. Don't trust the people. I will call in your details so that the police on this road will not bother you. Have a safe journey. This is too funny, Alberto chuckled. We only find good people who are afraid of each other. But that still didn't allay my fears. We continued along what was supposedly the main road to Skador, sharing it as equally with horses, donkeys, and mules as we did with cars and buses. Most people stopped to offer us a ride and appeared confused when we refused. We would later learn that for people here, only the poorest of the poor walked. Even riding a donkey was a step up from walking. We finally arrived in Skadar, where the crowds, filth and stench, mixed with the late afternoon heat, exhaust fumes and dust, to suffocate me. People bumped me as I walked past or brushed up against me. I felt invaded, as if I had no personal space around me, no space where I ended and they began. Some people followed us, asking for money in English. One young man pointed to my ring. An old woman pointed to my town necklace, and then at Alberto's watch. In comparison to their meager existence, we must have appeared the wealthy tourists. It was all just too overwhelming. I began to withdraw then, to put up a barrier of self-preservation. I stopped greeting people and avoided all eye contact. I charged ahead, pushing my way through the crowds, trying to create a safe space around me. Some people pointed at our signs and laughed. Others stared angrily at us. For the first time since entering Albania, I felt physically unsafe. My fear mounted, and I found myself responding in agitation to some people, curtly telling them in English to get out of my way. Hey, relax, Alberto said at one point, grabbing my arm. What you're doing is not helping the situation. Either change your attitude or take the sign off. Leave me alone, I yelled, yanking my arm away. Alberto grabbed my arm again, this time a little more forcefully. He had a look of anger that I rarely saw. Look, I know you're upset and you're tired, but you must control yourself. You're not carrying a product ad on your back. Remember what you're doing. I jerked my arm away and charged ahead blindly. Anger, fear, and exhaustion all played themselves out in my body, and I felt their effects in every one of my muscles. Alberto caught up with me and walked ahead, leaving me to follow him and to trust that he would find the Franciscan monastery where we were expected. Atop a small hill it sat. With its lush trees and manicured gardens, it appeared as an oasis in that desert of a city. We were warmly welcomed and shown to a clean room with several beds, where I immediately dropped my backpack on the floor, yanked out my change of clothing, and headed to the showers. I stripped off my clothing and soaked them in the sink, 
watching with disgust the water turn black. I stepped into the shower, eager to wash away all the unwanted, both physical and non-physical, which had accumulated that day. The warm water cascaded over my head and shoulders, and then down my weary body. Its caress was warm and soothing, its whispers gentle and reassuring. My tears, too long held in, flowed freely. I leaned my head against the porcelain wall and began to weep. I don't know if I can do this, I thought. I don't know if I'm strong enough. It's only my second day here and I'm already biting people's heads off. Alberto's right. I need to get a grip. This is not my way and certainly not the way of peace. I sat in the shower, drained on all levels. The gentle whispers and soothing caresses continued falling, more tender and real in that moment than the kindest mother. The waters washed away my failings that day, and by the time I came out, I was ready to try again. Leaves rustled gently in the refreshing breeze, while birds chirped happily, welcoming me in my renewal. Alberto had showered also, and together we went to join the monks who were expecting us for dinner. There, we met a Croatian priest named Marcelo, a short, burly man who reminded me of a pit bull. He listened with interest to our stories and seemed especially interested in Alberto's views of God and his experiences in Medjugorje. I still felt emotionally fragile and was happy to have Alberto lead the conversation while I sat in silence. When I mentioned my fears about walking in Albania, Father Mal Marcelo said, What you heard was true five years ago, but not today. I've been here nine years now and lived through the worst of it. You can trust the people here. Albanians are some of the most generous and hospitable people in the world. Most have nothing, but will give you what little they have from the heart. I am telling you not to be afraid. You are safe here. If you need help, ask for it. They love to help. Father Marcelo spoke with a directness and an authority that I trusted, and I promised to heed his advice. With maps difficult to find, he sketched out a route that would get us into Tirana, the capital city, and pointed out the places where he had friends who would receive us. I went to sleep that night holding on to Father Marcelo's vision of Albania, and trying to forget the trials of the day. Father Marcelo's map led us to friends in Bouchat, Lege, and Lash, where we were readily welcomed. We met missionaries from around the world, Filipino nurses with their mobile hospital, and Indian monks representing Mother Teresa's work among the poorest of the poor, who were all working to rebuild Albania. Their humility, humanity, and love for the people truly touched us. We saw their spirituality, one that went beyond religious dogma, in action. I envied their passion and commitment and hoped that being with them would rekindle that spark within me. But it didn't. With each passing day, I felt myself growing weaker. At one of our stays, we met a retired English gentleman named John who coordinated humanitarian aid from the UK to Albania. John spoke at length about his many accomplishments and accolades, but never once asked about our journey. 
The few occasions that we did try to speak, his eyes wandered and he seemed uninterested in what we had to say until he brought the conversation back to himself. As I contemplated our meeting, I couldn't help but feel that he was sent as a warning that I was in danger of becoming someone superficial who told amusing stories and anecdotes but who lacked sincerity. I could imagine people's reactions to his stories. Wow, what you're doing is so great. Wow, the BBC interviewed you about your work? Wow, they've made you an honorary citizen of a small town in Albania? Wow. He was a well-intentioned man who was doing important things indeed. But what I really saw was myself. I was tired of speaking about our walk, of repeating the same stories over and again. My words were becoming rote, well-rehearsed, and I spoke them with little passion or authenticity. My mind at times wandered in the middle of conversations. People reacted to me in the same way that I was sure they reacted to John, but I was feeling increasingly empty and a fraud. I wanted to stop walking, to take a break, but would not allow myself to even consider it. To me, that would mean failure, and I knew that that would haunt me much worse than any emotional fatigue I was feeling at that moment. I was touting a message of inner peace that I felt so very far away from, and feeling ever more fearful that people would see right through me, especially Alberto, who appeared more confident than ever. Although he tried to comfort me, in his eyes, I saw his looks of disapproval and disappointment in me, and so withdrew deeper, praying that Albania would not destroy me. If it was possible, walking into Tirana was even more horrendous than walking into Skadar. Despite my best efforts, I found myself slipping into despair and angrily pushing my way through this interminable hell. As we got closer to the city center, the path became a freshly paved road with lines that traffic actually obeyed. The shacks and corrugated metal roofs were transformed into real brick buildings, some with Spanish tiles. The conditions continued improving, and eventually we found ourselves along a main avenue where freshly painted and colorful buildings, rivaling any in historic Europe, lined the street. A divide of trees and flowers added a splash of color and elegance to the wide lanes. Upscale shops displayed the latest fashions. Where did Albania go? I asked Alberto. He shook his head, his eyes as wide as mine, taking in this stunning view and trying to adjust to this new reality. A few blocks in any direction, chaos and squalor were the norm. But this area in the center was pristine. I couldn't believe the contrast and wondered why the government would leave the outskirts in such a disastrous state. Father Richard, the priest who was hosting us that evening, was most accommodating, inviting us to spend an extra night. We used our time to rest and to send home some of our heavier winter items, but keeping our sleeping bags, just in case. My daily uniform would now consist of my usual pants, a t-shirt, a lightweight long-sleeve shirt, and a summer hat. Alberto did a similar cleansing of his backpack. We shipped over four kilograms that day, 
a difference that I knew we would feel when we walked. And in a country where I least expected it, my bank card actually worked and I was able to withdraw euros from an ATM. Father Richard appeared later that evening to take us to dinner. It shocked me to be riding in the new Land Rover, which he proudly explained was the church's property. But I couldn't find words to say. We drove in silence along tranquil, winding roads, finally stopping at what appeared to be a private, gated estate. But it was a restaurant. Small tables filled the intimate space, each adorned with embroidered white tablecloths, gleaming china and sparkling crystal and silverware. The soft lighting and flickering candlelight added to the cozy feeling. Patrons were dressed elegantly, some of the men in jacket and tie. I looked at my dusty, well-worn boots and clean but always slightly soiled pilgrim clothes and felt completely out of place. The seating host greeted Father Richard by name and led us to a table by the window. The cuisine was Italian and the dishes easily recognizable. Father Richard ordered a bottle of red wine and we ordered our food. The waiter brought us a lovely assortment of breads and then placed the napkin on my lap and then on those of the men. I was accustomed to this level of service and attention, but I couldn't help but feel that we were somehow doing something very wrong. I desperately wanted to ask about the atrocious conditions in this country, but didn't dare, fearing that I would too easily reveal my true feelings at that moment, and I didn't want to hurt our host. I knew that he wanted to treat us well, and that his intentions were honorable. The battle of inadequacy was my own. Time passed quickly, and we spoke a great deal about our spiritual beliefs, which Father Richard seemed to agree with. You're a man of deep conviction, he said to Alberto at one point. Perhaps you two will become a priest at the end of your pilgrimage. Alberto laughed. Well, I only have one small problem with obedience. I could never go against my conscience, no matter what any person or authority figure tells me to do. But, well, that, that makes you a Protestant, Father Richard exclaimed. They don't believe in the hierarchy of the church either. Alberto seemed taken aback by the response and calmly replied, I don't like labels. I will listen to the advice of others and I'm even open to follow a teacher or a master but will ultimately listen to my heart because that's where God is to me. If that's what a Protestant is, then maybe I was always one and never knew it. I laughed lightly, trying to ease the tension, but I couldn't. The rest of the evening was subdued. On the morning of our departure, we searched out Father Richard to say our goodbyes and found him in the church's administrative offices. The marble floors and gleaming crystal left me astonished. In light of all the poverty we had seen, this extravagance combined with our dinner experience the night before to me seemed insulting to the people of this country. In that moment, I forgot all the kindness and all the assistance we had received from the church. I forgot about Fra Drago and Fra Ante and the long chain of priests who had helped us. I forgot about the good they were doing and only saw the failures. I shared my frustrations with Alberto. 
You know, I'm the first to agree that you don't have to be poor to help the poor, he said. I believe in helping others awaken their unlimited power to create abundance in their lives and to change their consciousness from poverty to wealth. But the church speaks of helping the needy and sharing everything with the poor. How can they live in such luxury when they're surrounded by so much misery and then preach that message? I don't get it. The contradictions that we were seeing, and worse yet, participating in, were causing both of us tremendous angst. We spoke more seriously about staying in hostels when we can find them and exploring other options for shelter. Alberto agreed. With that simple pronouncement, I felt a freedom that I had not felt in a long time. We continued eastwards, passing Eba, Elbasan, Librasht, and Prenias, the conditions improving the further east we traveled. One evening during those days found us in the company of three young evangelist missionaries. They had seen us on the road and invited us to have dinner with them. My patience with all things religious was already thin, and so I left it to Alberto to carry on the theological discussion they were eager to have. I did find it interesting to learn that evangelists didn't venerate Mary, as did the Catholics, and didn't believe that she was a virgin. They also didn't believe in the hierarchy of the church and allowed their priests to marry. What they fervently believed, however, was that Jesus was the only way to salvation, and they spent the better part of the evening trying to convince us of that. The one named Edona, the youngest and most passionate of the group, asked me directly why I believed peace was a choice when peace only came from God. I looked at Alberto with desperation. Of course, peace comes from God, he said. Everything comes from God, but he also gave us the free will to choose any path we wish to follow. So even if we walk paths where we are oblivious to God's existence, we can still find peace. Peace doesn't come from believing in God, but from loving ourselves and the world in the same unconditional way that he loves us. Alberto continued patiently with them as I slunk further away into the corner. I watched with envy the couples in the restaurant, eating quietly, some laughing, others speaking intimately. I was certain they weren't speaking about Jesus and salvation and longed for that kind of carefree evening. I'd like to say a prayer for you. Idona declared over dessert. We held hands as requested. She closed her eyes and began speaking fervently in Albanian. The words Jesus, Alberto, and Monica were frequent and prominent. I felt spiritually violated, my beliefs disrespected, and hers foisted upon me. I glared at her and saw her face turn red. The others exchanged nervous glances. Alberto quickly read my reaction and the general shift in the mood. Thank you, Idona, he said kindly. Even though we don't completely agree with your beliefs, I still appreciate your prayer. Dinner finished quickly after that, and we stood to say our goodbyes. I hugged each person in turn, trying to be sincere in my well wishes, but knowing that I wasn't pulling it off. Alberto did the same, with sincerity and stopped with Adona, his hands resting on her shoulders and gazing compassionately into her eyes. I don't want you to feel bad about your prayer this evening, he said. 
what you did was good because above all else, I know that it came from love. Idona's eyes brimmed with tears and I wondered if Alberto's last words had finally reached her. Alberto was a spiritual gentleman that night and had treated them with a kindness and caring that went beyond anything that I could have mustered. I admired him deeply for being able to maintain his composure and at the same time, never felt further away from him. Our last day in Albania was magnificent with spectacular views of lush valleys and a crisp air that invigorated all my senses. I heard birds chirping and streams gurgling, all offering their farewell song to me. My excitement at leaving was tinged with the sense that I was somehow running away from the battle. Albania had pushed and tested me in ways I had never expected, and I was sad to admit that I had failed many tests miserably. I had left Croatia a celebrity, confident in myself, my walk, my purpose. Now I questioned everything and hoped that a new country with its different culture and ideas would inspire me with the love I once felt for this walk. It was the only way I knew of handling what I saw as a defeat. I was so emotionally despondent then that I didn't even stop to appreciate that none of the warnings about Albania ever materialized. The border patrol guard took our visas without comment and stamped our passports. We walked into the neutral zone. I did not look back. I never wanted to look back. However, the further I got from the border, the greater the nagging feeling that I had neglected to do something important, something that I had done consistently at the border of every country. I stopped and turned around. The border crossing was barely visible. Thank you, Albania. Felimenderit, I said. The breeze that blew that day carried no response, but I knew one day it would. I turned and faced forwards once again. Together with Alberto, we walked towards the Macedonian border. It was May the 1st of 2002. A new month, a new country, and what I hoped would be a new beginning.